0: like everything um, seems to be true with everything, things that tend to stay around for a while, they get institutionalized, including the teachings of the Buddha. And uh, there's some value in that process because if it's done relatively well, then that process of, distilling and institutionalizing and can perhaps uh, allow the teachings to have a longer life, right? Like I've been reading, um, studying over the years, this uh, wonderful short text by Gil Franzdal called The Buddha Before Buddhism. I left a couple copies of the book out on the table in the uh, Living room here at the retreat center, and um, I put in the Google document for all of you on Zoom uh, an article that Gil Franstel wrote summarizing the book. It's called Natural Buddhism. I also left a couple of copies of that out on the table for people here. Remember, just uh, would really draw some inspiration and guidance from short, you know, just like hearing a talk or asking a question in a small group or. Hearing a reply to another person's comment. You know, we could get just the right medicine, something that's useful that the mind can use to clarify. We can clarify our own experience. But we can also use studying and thinking, for that matter, as a way of avoiding being in, in our experience. So that's where the real transformation happens. So the study is in the service like, to inspire and clarify how to be present with our experience, not as an end in itself, because it's endless. There are endless good books to read about Buddhism, let let alone all the other things you could read about and study. It is literally, there is literally no end. And in this text, uh, the Buddha before Buddhism, you know, what, what was the Buddha's experience as a human being and what did he share before it became Buddhism, <laughs> you know, it got institutionalized? Because it wasn't that long, you know, before it was quite a major movement in northern India at the time of the Buddha. You know, he taught for about uh, 45 years, so a long time, and... Uh, and Being a charismatic teacher, you know, things happen. so after a few years, there was quite a following. And after a few more years, it was like a big deal in those places. And you know how it is, like people, and people like people here, you know, we want to, people who aren't fully baked and awake and clear, you know, they, they want to be seen as you know being good students of the buddha and then they are the rebellious types who want to put their own personal spin and you know and so then uh, the wise ones clamp down no no this is how we say it and don't deviate from this and everyone memorizes the same thing and and you know it just gets messy very quickly and this particular um, set of teachings that Gail Franzdahl translates and has this great introduction. That's where I left the book out. Not so much for the translations, which were wonderful, but the uh, whatever it is, twenty-page introduction to the book is quite good. And that article is even shorter. It's just like six pages. But the uh, the these passages from the Book of Eights. It's translated. The title of it. This, these discourses, these poems, really, or verses, um, they, there's a real collective sense that this is, these are early teachings because even among the Pali discourses, the talks and teachings that were used at the time of the Buddha, this set of verses was talked about. So there's a a lot of strong evidence that this is one of the earlier collection of verses from the Buddhist teachings um, because it was referred to even in the early teachings. And it's, you know, it's different than a lot of the teachings we know because, you know, we know the Four Noble Truths and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and the Eightfold Path. And it's not like those are teachings of the Buddha. I don't think anybody's saying that. But it may not be the original voice of the Buddha. It may be a way for the Buddha and other uh, students, disciples of the Buddha, to organize the teachings. And, you know, ways that I think most of us have found really valuable and will continue to find valuable, and it's not about rejecting it. But it is useful to see what this human being emphasized when he began teaching. And one of the ways he taught, one of the things he really emphasized when you look at these early teachings is the point of practice is personal peace through non-clinging and to support that that aspiration, personal peace with whatever's going on. So that just means the peace is here, right? And it doesn't mean we don't care about the wider world. The Buddha talks about in those early teachings, the Buddha talks about how when people have peace with their conditions, right? it's conducive to the healing and, the, you know, betterment of the wider community. In the same way, people who are not at peace with their conditions of their lives, you know, those are the people who the image, one of the images used in the sutta is like a fish flopping around out of water. You know, we're, there's a kind of desper, desperation in how we act towards each other, the kind of willingness to act out greed and act out aversion and hate, act out distractedness, you know, different ways we try to stick our head in the sand so we don't feel, we don't see. So he talks about, um, you know, Gil's summary of these teachings and you can read them yourself, these wonderful verses you know what gets emphasized is one thing interesting is you know the buddha you know a lot of the words like even the word buddhist i think just used once in this collection of teachings you know it's usually the word it gets translated as sage which just means somebody with wisdom um, Not arhat awakened one noble one not even tathagata that I talked about last night um, isn't used in those early teachings. Right? So, but the, the the sage the sage, a wise person, is described as someone who's peaceful with conditions. So not not in these sort of metaphysical, amazing, mir you know with miracles and, but just someone who I mean it is pretty miraculous to be peaceful with conditions, no matter the conditions, it's pretty grounded. And interestingly, the training, you know, if we want to be peaceful with conditions, guess what the training is? We practice being peaceful with conditions. Sounds a lot like what happens when we sit. All things come at us, right? Whatever the mind has the tendency to think, that arises. Whatever the body has a tendency to feel, that arises. Whatever might arise in the room that we're in, you know, will arise. It will get hot, it will get cool. And we get this opportunity, you know, we see it in such vivid living color where we become the one who's trying to make our experience perfect, better, which if we observe that, we'll see it's stressful when we're the one. It doesn't mean like I'm now adjusting my posture, right? And it's not like adjusting our posture is wrong, but um, deepening that sense of being the one, Who's dependent on conditions being just so is a setup. So when we sit down in a simple space, we sit relatively still, and we get to practice. Right? It's it's a kind of exposure and uh, it's a setup because the whole ritual, especially you know when. We're sitting as a group and even those of you at home, you know, if your video is on there's a kind of commitment that yeah, I'm I'm engaging this ritual with everybody else and it won't be easy. Some sits are extremely difficult. We just want to bolt or keep moving or whatever, you know, fall asleep or And we just—I mentioned earlier—we just learn in such vivid ways that hating my experience, trying to control my experience or fix it, is always frustrating. And sometimes, even in one sit, we can go from a very vivid hell realm that you know, lasts as long as it lasts to moments of, heat, you know, profound healing peace. And it's, and the difference really is about this peace through non-clinging, you know, we concoct some experience, you know, the mind participating with its own interpretation, which then in a sense, we live inside of the interpretation the mind has concocted, that I can't be happy until this goes away so this is resolved and it can get really intense people you know sweating and yeah you know, just feeling like cornered cornered animal or at times or you know like a staring contest with some drama or some pain you know i'm not afraid of you or then cowering the next moment i am afraid of you <laughs> desperate for distraction, you know, so much of our distractedness, thinking about this, planning that, fantasizing, remembering, it's just a way, it's just like escaping, like when we feel a victim of the present moment, and we just desperately want to hide from it, go somewhere. So we go to our files and try to find some memory that will be entertaining enough or some fantasy that will be entertaining enough that will, in a sense, capture the mind. So the, these early teachings talk about the sage, the wise person, and the basic definition is, you know, somebody who is peaceful with conditions. But there's a little more to it, let me just read. is from Gill's book, uh, from the article rather. Clinging is explained as the primary reason a person is not peaceful. The release of clinging is the primary means to peace. The value of these teachings is not found in philosophy, logic, or external religious authorities, but rather in the results they bring to those who live by them. The goal emphasized in this text is described both by the states of mind attained and by the mental activities that have been pacified or abandoned. The most common descriptions of what is attained are peace, calmness, tranquility, and equanimity. In sharp contrast, clinging, <coughs> clinging craving, entrenchment, and quarreling are the most frequently mentioned activities that are abandoned. So uh, so then the, these early texts, they, they talk about the stage and the training that leads to someone becoming wise. And then they also tend to emphasize you know, where that clinging happens. And you could probably guess why don't you just guess, you know, silently in your mind for a moment, what are, let's just say, the two most obvious things that our minds cling to, attached to, fixated on. So the Buddha says, views and sensual experience, right? Right? How many times today have we thought about lunch, or dinner, or food, or warmth, or lying down, or the pain in the body not being the way it is, or a hug from a loved one, or, you know, so we don't want to belittle or demonize pleasant sense experience that's not the problem. The problem is the clinging, the dependence, not being warm. <laughs> There's nothing evil about being warm, but hating being cold is unnecessary suffering. And this uh, attachment to views, you know, just even even like, uh, strangely, it can, it can seem strange at least, around conceit. You know, it makes sense that like clinging to the idea I'm better than, and kind of makes sense, but a little less, thinking I'm less than, you know, but that's an attachment that's clinging. But even clinging to the idea I'm the same as. You know, it's like the mind doesn't have to be dependent fixed on any view even a so-called like in our relative sense wholesome view we're all in this together but if the mind clings to that you know and you can imagine the extreme we cling to it and then we think well we should make a church you know we are the folks who are in this together church and uh and then it could all it, anything can be divisive when there's clinging involved Right? And then people who have a different view, I don't think we're in this together. You know, they're the enemies. But it isn't that the idea we're in this together is good or bad. What, what causes problems in our heart, and we can experience that directly, is when we cling to it. And in these early teachings, you know, just because the, evidently, the environment in northern india what was northern india back then um, was pretty alive with you know different religious spiritual teachings and views and practices and you know it i mean india's always had this sort of reputation but you know a lot of that is just debates <laughs> you know my god's bigger than your god kind of thing and um, and that exists you know in the Buddhist tradition as much as it exists anywhere. So it's not like Buddhism is immune to these sects and different views about what awakening is, what enlightenment is, what is jhana, you know, different opinions about what jhana is, deep concentration. Is believing in rebirth essential to do the practice or is it just a per, you know periphery thing because of the culture at the time. You know, there's all, you could, you could have people like go to the wire with one side of that, that, an issue or the other side. And the Buddha was really clear, you know, that sages don't quarrel with anyone. People may quarrel with a wise person because, the very definition of somebody with deep wisdom is not clinging to views. You know, it's hard to have, I don't know if you've ever had this, but it's like, uh, you see this sometimes even politically these days, where uh, probably I think from both ends of the political spectrum, maybe even equally from both ends of this political spectrum, but, you know, people really looking to have an argument, and uh, and it's like really frustrating when they run into somebody who doesn't have a fixed view, and you might be that somebody sometimes, and it's like really disconcerting. Oh yeah, I see that. I get that. You know, but I could, you know, I I can relate to what the, where these people are coming from too, and. And I'm not saying all opinions or views are the same or equal in some way. But when we're hurting and when there's a lot of turmoil and uncertainty, then we uh, wrongly, in the sense of it's a cause for suffering, we wrongly look uh, to what we can cling to views, opinions, philosophical points of view, political points of view. And there isn't one, you know, like uh, I was reading something recently about the climate crisis and, uh, and they were putting some of the extremism, I hadn't seen this before, hadn't that hadn't been pointed out to me before i read this article but it's like uh, so many important things that need attention get rejected not because of the validity of the argument uh, people are making but but people sense maybe not even consciously that something's off in the argument that's being made but it may not be the facts It may be the attachment and the judgment and the hate, the belittling of people who don't get it yet. And um, and then it makes sense, you know, that our world becomes so dysfunctional because we can't actually have a conversation and we don't really listen to each other. And because we're both not listening to each other. No one's listening to each other. We get, I think there's some dynamic where we get pushed into more extreme. Not so much that we bend the facts, but what gets extreme is our view of people who have a different view than us, or we imagine have a different view than us. And then pretty soon it makes sense that, you know, no way we're going to convince them some way we have to dominate them or get rid of them, right? Because th- what I think is important is important and they're in the way. And you really feel this now in so many different arenas. So it's a, you know, in our setting here being on retreat, it's a really ideal time just to contemplate. And remember in our practice, it isn't just about coming back to the breath or coming back to walking as useful as that is. But when we get some continuity and some stability of present moment awareness, one of the ways to sustain that valuing of present moment awareness is to use some of these Dharma lenses like peace through non-clinging you can you can have that loosely in the mind as you walk back and forth and you're with the physicality of walking, peace through non-clinging. Or just the you know, when when there is a disturbance and you notice the mind's been lost and now it's present, you can just say, oh clinging to view, attached to some mental image, some scenario of me becoming someone, some conceit being better than, worse than, same as. Those are all fixed views, all a dependence on view. And just that serene smile, oh yeah, that is the cause for suffering. And and it's never about not having views or opinions. And that's kind of the false uh, response people, well, of course, you've got to have, yeah, have your opinions, but why the dependence? Why the attachment, the clinging? What? That, what's the value there? When we observe, we see the what comes from it is directly, immediately a stress. And then, not only that, we become an irritant to everyone around us. Because so much of what we do with our fixed views is... Uh, We try to solidify, because it's so slippery, you know, we're constantly patching up anything we're identified with, fixed on, and, and we want other people to help us solidify that, you know, people in our camp. And we have these sort of unspoken deals with our friends, you know, I'll support your delusions, your fixations if you support mine. I won't question them too deeply, you know, I'll let you have your... Your imaginings, and you let me have mine. And if we rock that boat, then you know we won't want to be around each other. And then the other thing to contemplate is just, uh, just how often we're looking to sense experience to save the moment, to make the moment meaningful. Right? Whatever it is. It's like one way or another dangling a carrot in front of us. or you know, a fear <laughs> behind us like that I'm running from. I'm, we're either running towards something or running. like how much time? I mean, if I added up my 40 years of sitting all those hours, how many moments was the ca- was the carrot in front of me like this, re- this sit will end? And it will feel good. I mean that is such a terrible irony and sad truth that much of our life, the motivation for much of our life is just to get to the next thing, to get to the end of the retreat, to get to spring when it's a little warmer, to get to my vacation, to get to Friday, to get to lunch, get to sleep, yeah, get to bed, get to my next warm bath with my bubbles. Gotten addicted to this bubble bath that they sell at the Seward Co-op, $13 for a bottle. I mean, it's a big bottle, fortunately, but it's kids, bubble bath, but I like it. (laughs) And it's like, you know, it's a sense pleasure. And it's like, I'm not, I think it's good medicine generally. And it's nice when I come places like here where, I mean, we do have a bathtub, but I don't take a bath. Um, And other places, you know, where I don't really have access to a bathtub. Because uh, it's nice to see I don't have to be dependent on it. You know, as nice as it is, I can be okay without it. That's the point of fasting. I mean, as a spiritual practice at least, it isn't that food is bad, but it's nice to know that if there isn't food, if I don't eat, I don't have to be the one who's suffering. It can just be that experience minus a person having a problem with it. And that's a good, you know, when this is the nice thing about, I mean, it's a little different for those of you at home. You have more options. Excuse me, um, in terms of, how you live your day, but even so, you know, most of us have turned our cell phones all the way off and um, really have modified our lives so they're more simple. And just to notice how it's really okay to be doing sitting and then doing walking and to not know what's happening in the world or happening with our friends. It's really okay to see this non-dependence on sense experience. We don't have our comfortable chairs that we have at home, maybe, or whatever it might be. This is a famous passage. It's not actually in that collection, but... There are other, uh, Gil talks about, I think in the article, how this uh, famous um, discourse from the Buddha here, Gil translates it, An Auspicious Day. But I think in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, he calls it uh, something like One Skillful Attachment, something like that. Um, but it, he, there's also evidence that this is one of the early discourses The Buddha said, don't chase chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind. The future is not yet reached. Right where it is, have insight into whatever phenomena is present, not faltering and not agitated. By knowing it, one develops the mind, the heart. Ardently do what should be done today. Who knows? Death may come tomorrow. There's no bargaining with mortality. Whoever dwells thus ardent, active day and night is, says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day. I like that. I've always liked that uh, Uh, as I said at the beginning, that the means and the ends have such integrity. And I think it's okay without, you know, getting caught in grandiosity to, to just, because we're more, I think we're generally more at risk at imagining that peace, freedom, or whatever is way out there. We're more at risk to do that than we are to th- wrongly think, I'm the Buddha of this age, you know, the radiant one. Ask me any questions. We're really good at sort of, uh, I, you know, idealizing something we've concocted in our mind—the perfect me, the perfect peace—and lowly me here, and the arduous journey. You know, and, and then it's like uh, we're not that interested in peace or ease or release because we have a very arrogant idea that I'm far away. So it can't be that important. So to yeah to, to kind of open that up a way in a way that feels skillful for you as you sit and walk Like, well, what's, you know, if, if it's personal peace, personal in the sense that it's here and now, real peace here and now, immediate, through non-clinging. Well, like in this moment, what's actually in the way of non-clinging, allowing this to be? And, you know, the Buddhist teachings are not idealistic. It's not about perfection. It's about peace through non-clinging. And not about postponing. You know, we're supposed to check it out here and now. Peace through not clinging And what can confuse us is how, as I mentioned, you know, we might actually taste some peace. But then, it, and five minutes later, we're back in some vortex of a drama that, you know, we've gotten caught up in. And then what we do is we dismiss the peace that we experience. Oh, no, I'm just an idiot getting caught up in my old patterns. I'm still way here at point A. I'm not at Y, one step away from Z, you know. And, and we don't want to ever imagine we're at why again, because it's so humiliating when our mind is back in a, you know, childlike tantrum. You know, no, this is not okay, really acting out in a way that hurts. But maybe right now the truth is that we have the capacity for moments of authentic peace and moments of authentic hell. And maybe if we get clearer about the moments of peace, it will transform our experience of hell. Because we have a lot more confidence when we're in, you know, because of the moments of hell that I'm that, I'm there, that belongs to me. And we're much more Likely be dismissive of moments of peace and ease and freedom, and that's just a habit that we can kind of play with. This is a perfect place, you know, to get interested in moments of peace. And you know, we'll like uh, Ethan was mentioning. You will try to grasp it, you know, and we'll learn. That will be good learning. <laughs> like you can't grasp peace. You can't. Personalize it. All you can do is allow it to be what it is. Healing peace. Ease. Calm. A sense of that broadening of the heart. You know, you call it love. That that inclusive quality of the heart that just has that generous yes to the way it is. Like everything belongs. The absence of hate. And to really oh, this is the peace of a Buddha. This is the peace. This is the peace that the Buddhist teachings point to, the heart that's not in conflict with anything. Is your heart in conflict with anything now? Well then we should know. Oh, this is the heart that really isn't in you know, maybe there's a little but not much conflict. Well, can we be interested in peace? So I'll leave it here, so we have some time for walking or movement. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.